0: Welcome to the latest podcast from the Stevenson Harwood Employment Team. You can subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. My name is Richard Friedman and I'm an associate in the employment team here at Stevenson Harwood. I have with me Paul Reeves, an employment partner, and today we are going to look back at some recent cases and their practical implications. So, Paul... To start off with, we're going to look at the Court of Appeals decision in Royal Mail Limited and Jutty. The key question in this case was whether blowing a whistle could be the reason for an employee's dismissal, which would mean the dismissal would be automatically unfair if the person who made the decision to dismiss was not aware of the protected disclosures made by the employee. In this case, an employee had made protected disclosures to her line manager shortly after her employment had commenced. The employee had been put under great pressure to withdraw these allegations and was deliberately subjected to bullying and harassment as a result of them. Ms Jutty went off on long-term sick and her dismissal was considered on the basis of performance. Importantly, the question of dismissal was considered by a different manager who, it was found, was not aware of the protected disclosures that had been made and was led to believe by the employee's line manager that the question of dismissal was being considered solely because of the employee's unsatisfactory performance. Overturning the decision of the Employment Appeal Tribunal, the Court of Appeal held that in establishing the reason for dismissal, the Employment Tribunal was obliged to consider only the mental process of the individual who made the decision to dismiss. Given the dismissing manager was not aware of the protected disclosures, they could not have been the sole or principal reason for the dismissal. Accordingly, the dismissal was not automatically unfair. However, it should be noted that the Court of Appeal did not rule out the possibility of the employee recovering compensation for her dismissal insofar as it arose as a result of the detriments he was subjected to because of the protected disclosures she made. For example, the detriment her line manager subjected her to by presenting false evidence to the decision-maker. So, Paul, what are the key takeaways from this case? Thanks, Richard. There's a couple of points that are noteworthy within this case. I think, first
1: of all, it's best practice for an employer that whenever they're appointing someone to a hearer disciplinary, that they choose someone who's got no prior involvement in the matter. Ideally, this is someone outside the department and certainly outside the individual's line management responsibility. This will help support an argument that the decision to dismiss was based only on the reasons given, for example, poor performance or misconduct, and not for any additional factors or suggestions of bias, as we saw in this case. Always think ahead. Who is it that will hear the disciplinary? and who will be available to hear the appeal to ensure that there's no contamination between the two individuals. A number of clients of ours have organised themselves in a way that they have a body of managers that will hear disciplinaries and grievances on a rotational basis, and that's something that is worth considering for your organisation. I think the second important point in this case, Richard, is the fact that employers should always ensure they have an effective whistleblowing policy in place, and that it's implemented in practice, and regularly reviewed to ensure that it's up to date. Individuals need to know how to access this and have confidence in the process. Train line managers so that they're aware of what is a protected disclosure, how they should deal with the situation if they receive a disclosure, and the possible consequences of not treating a whistleblower appropriately. On the latter point, I always find that highlighting one of the potential consequences for individuals is personal liability usually focuses their minds.
0: Thanks Paul. Our second case is that of Agareo and London Borough of Lambeth, a high court decision which considered whether placing an individual on suspension could amount to a repudiatory breach of contract. Miss Agareo was a primary school teacher who was faced with allegations that she had used unreasonable force on three occasions towards a child who was considered to exhibit challenging behaviour. Two of these occasions had been looked into internally and it had been found that the force used by Miss Agareo was reasonable. However, Shortly afterwards, the executive head of the school informed Ms Agareo that she was suspended in light of these allegations. The school's letter of suspension stated that the suspension was a neutral act, it was not a disciplinary sanction and its purpose was to allow the investigation to be concluded fairly. Ms Agareo resigned immediately, providing a resignation letter that suggested her resignation was largely on amicable terms. Ms Agaré then commenced proceedings claiming that her suspension was a repudiatory breach of the duty of trust and confidence that is implied into all employment contracts. The High Court criticised the borough's procedure in suspending Ms Agaré, as it had made no attempt to establish her version of events prior to that suspension. There was also no evidence of an alternative to suspension being considered. The suspension had therefore been a knee-jerk reaction and the school's default position. In light of this background, the suspension was a repudiatory breach of the implied term of trust and confidence. So Paul, what are the key takeaway messages from this
1: case? This case is quite interesting because we covered this topic in a prior podcast. I think it's always important when suspension's being considered to stop and think, is suspension actually necessary? More often than not, it isn't. And the trouble you face, or the problem that you face by suspending someone, is that suspension develops a life of its own and could put undue pressure on the employer to conclude its investigations quickly, and develop into a long period of absence for an individual who therefore becomes guilty by their absence, which is not what you're aiming to do with a suspension. You should not simply use suspension as a default position when there are allegations of misconduct. An initial investigation, in most cases including a meeting with the employee in question, should be undertaken prior to making any decision as to whether to suspend or not. Get as much of the investigation done as possible before you actually meet the individual, This should ensure that if suspension is necessary, the period of suspension should be relatively short. It's vital that you document the decision-making process as to why you have chosen to suspend and whether you've considered any alternatives to suspension. And they should be noted down so that if, as in this case, suspension was challenged as a fair act, you can justify why you have taken the action you have taken. Even if your policy or contract of employment states that suspension is not a disciplinary act, Those words alone are not going to save an employer, and therefore you still need to go through the thought process that I've explained as to whether suspension was the right thing to do and what alternatives there were. However, having those words that suspension is not a disciplinary act is obviously going to be helpful, and if your contracts policies don't include that, then I would advise that you update them. Finally, where it's decided that suspension is appropriate the period of suspension should be reviewed on a regular basis and the individual kept up to date as to where the investigation process has got to. Nothing is more frustrating for an individual than being suspended and then having no contact for many weeks from their employer. As a general rule, suspension should not be a knee-jerk reaction and should be considered carefully in all circumstances.
0: Thanks, Paul. Yes, that certainly a cause with my experiences. Often we'll have employers who suspend an employee on the basis that they think the investigation will be conducted swiftly, but due to unforeseen circumstances such as absences or simply people being away from the office who are involved in the procedure, these things take much longer than originally anticipated. So I can see why you'd want to keep the employee up to date with what's going on so they are aware of the circumstances that are causing the delay. Finally, we're going to have a look at a case concerning restrictive covenants. The Court of Appeals decision in Tillman and Egon Zender. Ms Tillman began her employment with Egon Zender in 2004 when she was provided with a contract of employment containing various post-termination restrictions. The post-termination restrictions in Ms Tillman's contract included a provision that she would not, directly or indirectly, engage or be concerned or interested in any competing business for six months post-termination. Ms Tillman achieved a number of significant promotions during her employment with Egon Zender but resigned with notice in January 2017 informing her employer that she was going to start work with a competitive business on the 1st of May this year. Egon Zender issued proceedings alleging that this would constitute a breach of the non-compete clause and sought an injunction to this effect. The High Court granted the injunction. Ms Tillman appealed, arguing that the inclusion of the words «interested in» in the non-compete covenant – Included shareholdings of any amount and that that made the clause too wide to be enforceable. The Court of Appeal agreed. They found that a shareholder would be interested in a company and therefore these words would prevent the individual holding one share in a publicly traded company. This made the clause impermissibly wide and unenforceable. It is relevant that Ms. Tillman's contract did not contain a permissible shareholding provision relating to post termination employment activities. The Court of Appeal rejected an argument from Egon Zender that the words interested in could be severed from the covenant, which would leave an enforceable restriction. The basis for the Court's rejection of this argument was twofold. Firstly, the removal of those words would still have left the phrase being concerned in, which again would also cover a shareholding. Secondly, the Court of Appeal held that severance can only take place where there are distinct covenants, although it should be noted that the Court of Appeal's approach on this point differs from the approach taken in previously similar cases. Paul, can you talk us through the key implications of this case? I think this case has um, a number of potentially
1: significant consequences, as I've seen a number of contracts with clauses drafted on similar terms to those discussed in this case. Employers should always be careful to consider the use of restrictive covenants in light of what the court has said in this case. As we all know, the courts start from the position that covenants are unenforceable unless there's a legitimate business interest to protect, and the covenants are no wider than are necessary and not unreasonable in their scope and duration. This case also serves as a useful reminder that contracts should be tailored to what former employer needs to protect. The more focus the clause is given at the time of drafting, rather than just using a precedent document, the better your chances of getting a court to reinforce those terms. And what do I mean by that? Well, It's very tempting to just use the template contract and not give much thought to how will this covenant work if the individual was to leave. I think it's vitally important, although slightly odd, that on entry to your organisation, you're looking at an individual's exit and what the consequences of that may be. But that's how you should be looking at this. As you've already mentioned, Richard, other words concerned or interested in necessary, even with a permissible shareholding exemption? Or could the necessary protection be obtained by prohibiting a former employee from being employed or engaged by a competitor, and therefore not worry about a shareholding in a competing business? Keep distinct the restrictions so that they're separate obligations. Use subclauses, define terms to make sure the clause doesn't become unwieldy or repetitive. The advantage of this is that if one section is found to be unenforceable, then having separate restrictions increases the likelihood that the court will sever the offending subclause and you'll be able to rely on the other enforceable restrictions. In this case, unfortunately, the restrictions were too intertwined and therefore the court wasn't prepared to sever the offending sections. So the whole clause failed. Having those sub-clauses will put you in better chance of having severance applied. Practically, the case is an important reminder to all employers to keep their contracts and in particular the restricted covenants up to date. The enforceability of the restrictions is tested at the date they're drafted and not at the date of application, which may seem unusual, but that's the approach the courts take. So, with regard to Ms Tillman, she'd enjoyed a number of promotions over her time with Egan Zender and was now in a very senior position at the time she left. The restricted covenants, however, were those that had been imposed on her when she joined the company many years earlier and had not been updated or developed with the numerous promotions she received. And that also counted against them. In our experience, promotions are a great opportunity for employers to review an employee's restrictive covenants and by issuing a new contract of employment to update those covenants so that they remain current to the role that the individual
0: occupies at that time. Thanks, Paul. It should be interesting to see what approach the courts take on matters such as this moving forwards and we'll be sure to keep listeners updated on any developments. Thanks again, Paul, and thank you for listening. Remember that you can listen again and subscribe to the series on iTunes, Stitcher and Soundcloud or by visiting our website...